one of Literary Disco, Five Days at Memorial. Today's episode in two parts will begin with a bookshelf roulette, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I will be forced to pick a book at random from our bookshelves and defend our ownership of it. And then we will dive into Sherry Fink's nonfiction recounting of the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina at one of New Orleans' largest hospitals, Five Days at Memorial. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Yo. Hi. I think you have to amend uh, Julia's description. She's not just an essayist and radio personality. She is also now a whale ship captain. A whaler? A woman of the sea. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What? You have to you have to tell the world about this, Julia. You you are going to force me into reading Moby Dick because of of this yes, new thing you have going on. Yes, a long con to get you to read a good book. <laughs> this is the only way Todd would ever read it. So, um, I am very excited because I was selected to sail on the Charles W. Morgan, which is a historic whale ship that hasn't sailed in 150 years. And the ship lives in uh, the Mystic Seaport, which is an amazing, amazing nautical museum um, in Mystic, Connecticut, near where I live. Right, you've been there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's really beautiful. And they have this whale ship that they've been restoring forever, and it's just in great condition. And it went on 37 voyages to slaughter whales um, back in the 19th century. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they fully restored it, and they're going to put it out on what they're calling the 38th voyage. So um, they ha- they put out a call for proposals for 38th voyagers, and the requirements are that you have to produce some kind of artistic material. So I'm going to go on the boat, learn to sail. Um, I have to take a a workshop on climbing the rigging, which I am losing oh, my shit. I'm so excited. Um, <laughs> See, that's the opposite thing. I'd be losing my shit because I'd have the horrible, god awful fear of death. Yeah, well, that too. But I grew up um, when I was a kid. One of my favorite, favorite, favorite books. I bet you guys have never read it. Um, is was called The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle by Avi. Did you guys ever read it? No. no. Oh God, it's so good. Uh, it's a it's a total girl book because on the cover it has this like girl in a Victorian dress and, like, her hair is blowing in the wind, but it's about she's the only uh, passenger that's not crew on this ship, and there's a mutiny, and it's just, it's a really great um, YA book, and my Sounds like it's potentially fairly rapey, though. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Hmm. She actually ends up um, cutting off her hair and joining the crew and partaking in the mutiny. It's really good book. Joining the crew and raping another woman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. She becomes she becomes the abuser. Yes. No, um, as I believe I've said on this podcast before, any book where a girl defiantly chops off her hair in the middle is probably a book that I enjoyed at one point in my life. <laughs> that was like a big thing, I feel like, in the 80s. Wasn't that? Like, oh, yeah. I feel like a lot oh, of cartoons yeah. involved. Like, it was huge. Or I guess it's always been a thing. Like, the you girl gotta hack it up. Covers a boy, right? yeah, well, even... And then, you know, like Joe, Joe March and Little Women does it. And, and then Britney Spears, it. she cut her hair. Yeah, another hero of mine. (laughs) Well, she is a hero. Let's be clear here. Julia wasn't joking. She's seen Crossroads like 50 times. I have seen Crossroads at least twice. (laughs) That's true. Um, Anyway, uh, so I will be writing an essay about learning to sail. um, And actually, I believe what I said in my application, so I have to do it, is that I'm going to reread Moby Dick and a bunch of other whaling books from the time and compare, basically 
give a literary review of the books just based on the experience of being on the ship. So, like, how well does the experience of the ship match up with Melville's descriptions and all that good stuff? So it should be really fun. But what are you going to be actually doing? I mean, obviously they're not going to be killing whales. What They're just going to be sailing around and... I'm not really sure yet. Um, that's all part of my training that I'm going to at the end of next month. Raping and pillaging. Yeah. Yeah, pillaging. It's I mean, pirating. I don't want you to Just get on there and there to be like, piracy. we need to replace Tillicum at SeaWorld, and it's your job to find the killer whale to replace him. I don't want that to happen to you. No, no, no. First of all, I don't think you know where orcas live. I, I don't have any not idea. in no. this area. But uh, my leg is going to be around Provincetown. Um, around the Cape, and then um, down through Boston, which is a really great... So we'll probably see some humpbacks, I'm hoping. But uh, no no orcas. Hmm. Sorry. I, I'm not going to kill anything, but, you know. Well, I don't I know mean... what I could be convinced <laughs> to do in the name of historical reenactment. I, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't say too quickly before you're even on this ship with these perfect strangers for a week that you aren't going to kill someone, because you want to leave that option open sort of both ethically, morally, and spiritually, that if someone... Like experientially. Yeah. Like, yeah. if someone pushes you too far, you need to be able to go up to them and be like, look, historically speaking, if I gaff the shit out of you, I'm a winner. Don't push me. And just see what they say. Yeah. And, I really hope that there's, like, a whole bunch of these sailors who, like, don't break character. <laughs> like a Civil War reenactment? <laughs> like, keep acting like it's, you know, 18... 32 and they just never break it i, I really hope that that's the but, case and you're like yeah yeah but w- what do you really do Arr, i never leave the ship <laughs> <laughs> okay i know but you know you have a job right my job is the sea <laughs> yeah who are you married i am married to the ocean <laughs> i have no i really have no idea what it's going to be like which is very exciting prospect at this time i am pretty sure that i will be sleeping either in a tiny cabin or a hammock below decks which i'm very excited about as well oh yeah Please just chop your yeah. hair off. Just chop <gasps> yeah. Oh my god! Just I you should, should just, do that. You did. You should. Okay, do don't that. like just give yourself the whole narrative of like the stowaway. <laughs> I might do it. Okay, Get a little page boy hat that you wear. <laughs> I have to bring like a rusty old knife to do it. Talk with, with a deep voice. Be like, my name is Jules. <laughs> <laughs> Jules Pistel. Julian. Good to meet you. <laughs> Yeah. Great. This sounds like it'll work great. No problem. All right. On to the roulette. Do we have numbers? We do indeed. Okay. And I'm going to do something we've never done before and take all of our numbers from one person who boldly okay. gave us three. Okay. And they are two. So we're going to go from the top right corner. Okay. Then we're going to go five shelves down. Okay. And then uh, we're going to count 18 books over from right to left. So two, all five, right. 18. All right. All right. Ready, Ready, set, go! Break. So I, uh, I, uh, I landed on a book that uh, I have not read, um, and I haven't read it for a number of reasons. The biggest one is that it was like the fourth book in a series, and I had only read half of the first book in the series. But the problem is that it was a book that my brother wrote. Uh, so I landed on. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Monk is Miserable by Lee Goldberry, <laughs> um, which was one of the books in the Monk series. Uh, let's see here. It came out in uh, 2008. Um, it's inscribed to me. It says, and th- so here's the weird thing about the inscription to me. Uh, it says, to Todd, 
Uh, now you owe me a copy of your eighth book. And then he signed it with his full first and last name, as though I would not know he was my brother. <laughs> well, he's or the like big you time. Would sell it yeah. For something later on down. Well, the line. I mean, there's a rich history of people in my family selling signed books of family members. My mom used to come and get signed copies of my books and sell them on eBay. Uh, yes, yes. There's one wow. time she came to my house and she had a stack of uh, my second book and she had like ten copies. I'm like, Mom, what'd you do? Where'd you get all these copies from? She's like, Oh. I bought a bunch. Um, there's the signed copies are selling for quite a bit on on eBay, so I thought I'd just sell them. And I'm like, <laughs> really? She's like, yeah. Wow. I, I was just gonna make a profit on them, and she did sell them on eBay, but not for a profit. Um, so Mr. Monk is miserable. Um, apparently, was an all new original mystery starring Adrian Monk, the brilliant investigator who always knows when something's out of place. Um, he, oh, it takes place in Paris? Did you read it? No. Be honest. No, I didn't read it. It takes place in Paris. I know that, that because... That is your uh, brother's so, eighth book, Tom. I know that. It's the eighth in the series, I think. Um, I know it takes place in Paris because on the cover, there's a picture of Mr. Monk standing in front of the Eiffel Tower. Um, I don't think he was really there. So my book was Mr. Monk is Miserable by Lee Goldberg. Available at fine booksellers everywhere. Excellent. All right. Well, um, I will go second. Um, mine is very different. Um, I picked out, and I just realized I could be pronouncing this wrong, so feel free to correct me. Um, John Berger's book about li- looking. Have you guys ever read anything by him? No. No. So um, he is a guy, uh, he writes essays. I don't know what to call them. Essays, reviews, um, art, cr- art criticisms, culture. It says on the back... As a novelist, art critic, and cultural historian, John Berger is a writer of dazzling eloquence and arresting insight, um, which is true. Actually, this is a great book. So it's all about, um, it's basically short chapters about the experience of looking at things, which is hard to describe or sounds weird until you look at the titles of essays. So the first one is Why Look at Animals, and it's about the emergence of zoos in the 19th century. Um, which is fascinating. And then there's several on photography, and then it goes into analyzing individual paintings. And I don't think I've read this whole book, um, leafing through it. I think it's the kind of book where I just leaf through, and there's, like, one part about Rodin, who I love, so I probably read that. And then I have starred one sentence in the entire book. (laughs) And that sentence is, we try to emerge from the moment of the photograph back into our lives. Oh. Which is a great sentence. It's a great uh, sentence. <laughs> and it's a wonderful sentence. Yeah, isn't it wonderful? And then there's it's a it's just a great book. So it uh, also inserts here. I'll show you guys reading Rainbow Time. Um, and it inserts photographs and paintings into the book. But now I'm feeling terribly guilty because I know this book is good and I know that I liked it and I intellectualized about it, but I don't really remember anything about it. So I am excited from our roulette to actually reread it and let it live on my uh, bedside table for a while. I think because, you might find yeah, it uh, curious when ace detective Adrian Monk shows up and starts <laughs> to help look at paintings. Yeah, well, also, I mean, here's a freebie. So I started reading a Donna Tartt's uh, new book, The Goldfinch, and it's all about art. And I just, like, I love reading about art. I really just adore it. And so I... I could see myself going down an art rabbit hole for a couple months. You know, the 
that book also sort of sounds like these books that are sort of single topic things that people do on a normal day. A friend of mine wrote a book um, called Doing Nothing and another book called Crying, um, which mm. were basically histories of doing nothing and crying. Oh my god! And I, could, I want to read that crying book. The crying book is pretty amazing. It's they're both by uh, they're both by Tom Lutz, um, and it's you know, these things that are just sort of things we do as human beings, like respirate, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that are sort of passive actions. But then you find out that they come from other larger things that we do. The the book on doing nothing, on basically being a bum, um, was really sort of interesting because it delves into the entire idea of. Um, the flaneur, basically, you know, that we had talked about on yeah. an episode once before, um, which I think is, you know, pretty, pretty compelling and interesting sort of culturally. And I think that there's more and more books like that because we become more and more curious about who we are as human beings and the small things that we do, be they looking or eating or crying or doing nothing or, you know, The Art of Picking Your Nose, a book that I read also. Um, so uh, that this book sort of sounds like it might fall in that realm yeah i mean it's very i would say it falls somewhere between that kind of book and i mean it's not like cod or anything right it's between cod and like a susan sontag book that's just going through some very heady intellectual work um about seeing and reading and thinking so yeah i I will reread it and report back to you guys because it has truly vanished from my brain and i'm excited for about its (laughs) reemergence. It's kind of a ballsy move to like pick something that's at once very general and very specific, like crying or looking. And it, you know, it's as a writer to say, "I'm I'm just a good enough researcher slash writer to make this an interesting mm-hmm. subject." Like that's it's kind of a ballsy move. I appreciate that. Well, and it's um, great to say. I mean, looking it's something we really don't think about, and would be interesting. I it would be interesting to know what his point of view would be on it now that we just spend so much time looking at screens and passively watching things because the passivity of looking is so, you know, it's so a part of our culture now. We look so much more than we make things. I I feel like now, but um, that's just me being an old curmudgeon. Maybe do either of you ever have that experience? And and I know my poor wife is so sick of me having this moment where I say it, where you realize you can't stop reading and like you're driving in a car and you see every sign and you're like 7-Eleven, Amco, Starbucks, Barnes and Noble, Cheesecake Factory. And you're just reading every single thing and you realize I can't not (laughs) process every single word that goes by me. And Wendy's like, yes, we can all read. We can all read. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, that's kind of just the way I go through life. Like, I feel like I, I can't not read anything. It's And, and I know that this is true because uh, my eyes started going bad like five years mm-hmm. ago. And the, and the reason I knew it was going bad is because I couldn't read every street sign perfectly mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. same distance anymore. And it started driving me crazy. Like, like I needed to know that I was passing Hyperion right. Street or whatever, you know. But, like, the idea that... I couldn't read every word perfectly was driving me insane. Hmm. So now I have to wear contacts and like my eyes are not that bad. You know, most people would say you could probably get away without wearing glasses or contacts, but I can't because I have a ghosting to every letter. And if I can't read mm-hmm. everything, I go crazy. You know? so, That's so interesting. I've had a lifetime of horrible, horrible eyesight. So like I'm sit, I can't read most of the words on a poster across for me right now and I'm fine with it mm. because that's how I live and then when I lived in Asia for a while like and that was jarring you know you can't read anything oh, yeah. you can't oh, yeah. read a single like there it's just so symbolic and obviously I learned to do it but 
the feeling of not necessarily knowing that you could navigate through the world with your eyes mm-hmm. was a huge adjustment. A huge, huge, huge adjustment. I knew that I needed glasses when I had uh, this great epiphany, which is that I was driving on the freeway and I was like, man, they have stopped painting freeway signs as sharply as they used to. It's like they don't even, you know, make the letters sharp. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's fucking insane. That, that's fucking insane. <laughs> I need glasses. <laughs> All right, so the book I landed on is uh, a collection of short stories by Stephen Milhauser called Dangerous Laughter. Um, we talked about Stephen Milhauser a little bit on our object lessons, uh, the collection from, it was the Paris Review, right? That was yes. people's short yes. stories. Um, Great story, right? And that was that had a short story in there from Stephen Milhauser that was about a uh, how a bunch of teenagers are taking their flying carpets out in the middle of the night for joy rides, and that is a good. That story could have easily been a part of the Dangerous Laughter collection because every story in this, not every story, but most of the stories in this book are magical in some way, or they have some sort of kind of you know crazy out there element. But Milhauser's whole thing is that he's he. He usually has like a, a, a really bizarre uh, part of the story, but then he takes it incredibly seriously and writes it as if it's, you know, a historical account of something that actually happened or it's a personal narrative. Um, so you have like the history of the giant dome that was built over the United States, or you have a story about the historical guy who built miniatures and he kept building smaller and smaller miniatures until um, he couldn't even see them anymore. And um, hmm. so most of the stories, they, they follow that kind of pattern. Somebody starts doing something that's a little magical or a little weird, and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger or smaller and smaller and smaller. It's almost like he's uh, his stories are focused on the intrigue and dangers of extremes and how things sort of start hmm. and then, you know, get out of control in some to some capacity the title story dangerous laughter is a really really good one it's a weird story about uh I, I, if i remember correctly it's somebody remembering something from their childhood and it's a, like a summer of their childhood in their teen years when every all the kids in their town started holding laughter parties where they all mm. got together and like tickled each other until they laughed like so hard that it was like you know this weird party experience and it says a very... Which would be illegal, by the way, right. in a lot of states. That's illegal in Utah yeah. right yeah. now. You, you, I've never done it. I would not come to a party and start tickling people. If your listeners don't go out and do this, that's a great way to end up getting put in jail. But go ahead, Ryder. Yeah. But it becomes like this great sort of metaphor, but not really a direct metaphor, but it becomes a, 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 a reminiscent of the way that when you're younger, you, you know did drugs or drank or played spin the bottle and like all those sort of you know corners of the human experience that as a teenager you hadn't like quite experienced and so you start flirting with them in like little groups of friends at you know slumber parties or we huffed model glue one year (laughs) oh god that's not that's not something you want to share with our listeners it's just a really interesting story because you you don't understand it. You're like, why are these kids getting around and laughing? But then you kind of it feels familiar to you. And um, he's just a really, really, really brilliant writer. Um, 
conceptually, I mean, he's very similar to Borges, if anybody's ever read Borges, in that, you know, it has, like, these really big kind of abstract ideas. Like, Borges was always obsessed with mirrors and maps and, you know, logic tricks. And Milhauser is similar in that, like, he'll ha he has a story about a town that has a town next to it that is an exact replica of itself that's empty. And so it's like, you know, he does these weird um, sort of conceits, but then he writes about them very realistically and populates them with very believable characters. So you, you kind of get pulled into these magical ideas. He has one story I, I want to read from, if I can remember where it is, because he has, uh, just to show how brilliant his language is he has one story about a person who has um like a really crazy level of aphasia where he's constantly losing words and losing his ability to use language I, i've been meeting more and more people incidentally with weird aphasias and yeah. like I, I had not heard of aphasia i think until like i don't know 10 years ago and now wait i don't know what it is Tell like it... where something will it's just that it's just the the loss of a linguistic ability. Right. Like, like Ooh. I just couldn't speak. Like, aphasias and also um, the synesthesia. I keep running into people that have aphasias and synesthesias. Yeah. Aphasia, I mean, it could be, aphasia could hmm. be as simple as, like, you know, you just can't come up with the, the right mm -hmm. word. But it's actually, it, it's a medical condition, you know. Right. So aphasia is hmm. a side effect of, you know, Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. Right. Or, and then there's weird, really bizarre forms of aphasia where people um, can... They can have the, the vocabulary perfectly, but they're, they're, they lose the ability to form sentence structure. Right. So, like, their words will be in the wrong order, or they'll maintain sentence structure but use the wrong vocabulary in the wrong... It's, like, crazy. There's so many weird examples of aphasia. It's one of those, like, sort of Oliver Sacks right. you know, areas of, of study, of brain study, that are really fascinating. And frightening, yeah. horrifying. Um, yeah. So, anyway, so this is, a, uh, this is a passage from that story that I just love. Words hide the world. They blur together elements that exist apart, or they break elements into pieces, bind up the world, contract it into hard little pellets of perception. But the unbound world, the world behind the world, how fluid it is, how lovely and dangerous. At rare moments of clarity, I succeed in breaking through. So he's just not, you know, not That's only beautiful. is he this crazy, wow. you know, theoretical sort of writer that can create stories out of really fun, imaginative um, ideas. He also is just a really poetic, beautiful writer on the level of language. So Stephen Milhauser, Dangerous Laughter. Wow, Everybody that sounds great. He was one of um, only two fiction writing professors at my undergrad, Skidmore, when I was there, and I did not take a class oh. with him, and I deeply regret. I had, oh. I had no idea. I had no, you know, it was just to me like another professor. And um, I took one with the other guy whose name was Steve Stern, and he was also wonderful. But, you know, I every time people bring up Milhauser, I just feel flooded with regret. He had the, he has a I great a story, writer. The Knife Thrower. Oh, I just loved it. Um, yeah. And then he's got another one that they turned into a not great movie, but a not bad movie, The Illusionist, that was based on one of his short stories. Also. I liked that movie. So, now, hold on. Let me guys ask, ask you guys an important question. What Didn't you ever do, like, weird fucked up things like with groups of other children like writer was talking about like I, I mentioned vaguely huffing paint or whatever but like i remember like there was times where we would get together and do 
I mean, not Stephen King shit where we'd like, you know, masturbate in a circle and kill a dwarf or something. But, you know, <laughs> oh we'd, we'd so get like we decide, oh, oh, you know what? We could we could smoke parsley. What's marijuana? But just like another weed. And, you know, we try to smoke parsley or we'd get in a thing where we would be constantly egging other people's houses or filling right. balloons with mustard and throwing them at people out of cars or whatever it might be that just horrible you know teenage things well i remember at 12 it was like it was pyromania yeah you know it was like oh building, yeah building yeah, like bombs yes, or yes. you know blowing up your toys or you know strapping an m80 to like and then there was always like we could go to chinatown and get the illegal fire oh like, that, that was, was always thing. that was always a thing but and that was always out there waiting thing. for you <laughs> Like, no matter what you were thinking, you know what we could do, though? We could take Barton to Chinatown. Right, right. If you were lucky enough to have somebody, like some parent or somebody who was over 18, who could, like, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that yeah, faded pretty quickly. And then there was also the Anarchist Cookbook. Well, that was big in the yeah, 90s, in yeah. the late 80s, early 90s. That was, like, which is terrified now, of course. But, you know, back then it was like, oh, you could find a book that'll teach you how to make napalm out of, you know, household products. Have oh, I, cool. Have I ever, have I never told the story of traveling with the Anarchist? his cookbook in my suitcase no did you get arrested oh god yeah i think you told me this personally so this was uh when i was writing burn notice um i had to learn how to you know blow shit up basically and so i bought the anarchist cookbook can you buy it yeah i remember it being this thing that was like elusive and i was hurt it was it it was elusive and so i went into barnes and noble where i live and i'm like looking i'm looking for the category on the shelves of you know domestic terrorism and that's difficult to find and so finally i go up to the front counter to the kid behind the counter whose name of course was like zach because they're always named zach behind the counter i'm like hey zach um i'm looking for the anarchist cookbook and he looks at me he's like okay i was like do you guys have it here he's like we keep it in the back and i said oh well i'd like to get a copy he's like all right. So he comes out and is literally shrink wrapped and he gives it to me. He's looking at me like I'm a fucking crazy person. And so I'm Why immediately. Why carry it? I don't know. It's freedom of speech. And I'm immediately like, you know, I'm doing it for research. So, you know, it's just, it's a whole, it's a research thing. So at any rate, this is actually when we were in graduate school together. That's probably when you heard about it, Julia. Yeah. I, we flew from here to Albany and I had the anarchist cookbook. And then, like, three other books on how to blow up trains or how to disable oh. the uh, the dam systems put up by the Army Corps of oh Engineers God. and, you know, books on counterinsurgency and shit. reading for your flight. Smart. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I'm a genius. And we didn't get our luggage that day. And then I didn't get my luggage on any other trip that went more than just an hour for a year. It was always delayed. And they would go through my stuff. I had, there was one time I was flying from here to Seattle for some event. And I had a big bag of flyers for the MFA program in it. And they slit the bag open and cut the flyers in half. And I'm like, what the fuck? And there was a little note that said, sorry, love TSA. And I'm like, oh, man. Did they write love? I probably probably should not have flown with the anarchist cookbook. Yeah, no. Stupid. Yeah, I'm not a smart person. As it happens. Well, you know, yeah. you don't have street smarts. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. You don't I have don't. air smarts. That's what happens. You don't have flight smarts, Todd. I'm scared of buses. Like, I'm scared of city buses. I, that's, that's the extent <laughs> of my street smarts. All right. Well, when we come back, we will talk about the ultimate street smarts, surviving a hurricane inside a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we will be right back. All right. 
Welcome back from nothing because this is a podcast and we don't have to have commercials, but we still stop. And look, <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> sometimes I have to pee. You know, I'm sorry. I'm a human being. I'm not a robot. I have to pee. <laughs> well, um, today we are going to discuss um, a book we read a little while ago and then had to delay a couple times. So we are so excited about it. Um, Five Days at Memorial by Sherry Fink. Um, it's a great book, and uh, well, sorry, I've shown my hands. Uh, it's a book about. <laughs> it's you didn't show about, anything because uh, if anybody doesn't think this is a great book, they haven't read it. I mean, it's an insanely yeah. right. good book. It's true. It's just. It's true. Within the first ten pages, I think I emailed you guys like this is the best book we've read so yeah. far. Um, yeah. It was just instantaneously arresting. So what it is about is. Um, it is a nonfiction account of, sorry, <laughs> we got this out, but I'm having like weird flashbacks to when I gave the same intro and then Todd started barfing. <laughs> 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 sorry about that. <laughs> okay. So uh, it is a nonfiction journalistic account uh, about Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath, specifically located within one hospital, um, which is called, I'm totally blanking out, Memorial Medical Center, um, right in the heart of New Orleans. And all of the life or death decisions that the staff and the visitors in the hospital had to make, and then um, the subsequent legal battles and ethical questions that arose thereafter um it's a huge book it's many hundreds of pages long and it probably has an equal amount of footnotes so um you can tell just at a glance that cherry fink is really serious about her subject and really serious about both writing it well and researching it thoroughly um and if any of you guys have listened to this podcast before you probably know that we all here unanimously adore dave cullen's columbine and of course this book is i mean they belong right next to each other right. on the shelf. I totally agree. Absolutely. Yeah. In style, in seriousness, in even like readability, which seems like such a dumb word to give to things of this magnitude, but um, it's true. It's something that like so many overwhelming subjects that I knew nothing about and was just extremely upsetting <laughs> for every minute of the read. Yeah. yeah. So what do you guys there's, think? What was your well, there, first There's not a pleasant moment in the book. I mean, it, it, I, I think I think Sherry Fink is a remarkable writer, and she already won a Pulitzer Prize for basically the article that became this book, which is The Deadly Choices at Memorial, which was an article she wrote for uh, the New York Times Magazine. Um, but it's... This, this book gave me more profound anxiety than anything I've ever read before in my life because there's there's no reason it couldn't have been any one of us in any natural disaster at any hospital mm -hmm. going through the exact same thing. It doesn't have to be a hurricane. It could be an earthquake if we live in California. It could be whatever happens in Hartford. What do you guys mm -hmm. get in Hartford? Well, now we've been getting a few more hurricanes. Mm, I would say the worst things that happen here are really extreme snowstorms. Honestly. And, pe and people wearing yeah. sweaters tied over their shoulders in the summertime? That's pretty bad. I can't even talk about that. That's too bleak to even <laughs> consider. It's too dark. It's too dark. Yeah. But I, I think I think the Columbine comparison is really apt because it, it drills down into basically minute by minute of these five days where this hospital was deluged with water um, and New Orleans was deluged and, and, and goes and looks at all these different perspectives of what ended up becoming... Um, you know, either a case of mass murder or mass euthanasia. 
um, at this hospital. And it's, I, I, was, I was completely compelled from page one to page 486, which is when the acknowledgments begin. Um, I, I absolutely loved it. What yeah. did you think, Brandon? Oh, it's riveting. It's riveting and it's um, so well-researched and, you know, really just well-written. I mean, she's able to, she brings in, because I mean, she obviously interviewed everybody that she could, and she's able mm-hmm. to recreate the five days very well, you know, in terms of, like, being specifically detailed of, you know, this person was on this floor at this time doing this. And amazingly, it's not dry. Like, you're actually, mm-hmm. you want to know where they were at what time and what was happening o- almost throughout the entire book, which, that you know, that's a feat unto itself. But then she also does things like... Um, the history of the hospital and the history mm-hmm. of, you know, New Orleans, um, how how the medical system of New Orleans works and the corporate culture that owns the hospitals. And she's able to, to, to tell you the sort of to, yeah. to give you a structural overview of how these systems work. And not only that, not only does it cover the hospital system and the structures that, that mm-hmm. go into that, but she also describes the legal system and the criminal justice system that um, involves the case that followed these events because um the main doctor dr poe was charged with mass murder essentially her and a couple of the nurses were charged with mass murder so there's a criminal investigation and a civil lawsuit that followed um the uh the events of the you know the five days at memorial that the book is covering so it goes into the politics of that everybody from the governor on down you uh, you get a, a complete accurate description of all of that so all of that then she also is able to bring in philosophers like at one point mm-hmm. she brings mm-hmm. in a, a really brief wonderful history of utilitarianism and and euthanasia and how questions of morality and it's like not a, a light discussion she's delving right into it and she gives the whole mm-hmm. history of um euthanasia throughout you know going all the way back to greek philosophers she does it all um she's a she, it's an exhaustive brilliant brilliant book that i think like no matter what your interests are um you're gonna find something about this book that speaks to you um i think people that are the fans of like um any of david simon's work whether you like the wire Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. treme obviously treme is a a good comparison but even his book homicide which is wonderful book all about one year with the the police department in 1988 he spends a year at the homicide department of the baltimore police which is an incredible book i think we've talked about on this on this podcast before i don't think we have but it's a great book and then it was a great underrated tv show too loved homicide And and the thing that David Simon does incredibly well, and he explicitly talks about how he's obsessed with systems, human systems, and Mm -hmm. how those those systems affect individuals. Um, And you know, like The Wire is a great example of how you know TV show could be just about the case, but in David Simon's world, it becomes about the drug dealers and their families, the politicians and their families, the cops and their, you know, and their friends and their lovers. And like, he does everything. It's like, he's never, he's never going to just be about one small corner of this, um, issue or this, you know, um, sensationalistic thing, you know, because at its heart, there's the moment where people were put to death, you know, in a hospital. Mm -hmm. That's what, at its heart, what happened here. And that is very sensationalistic. That's something that I think is a dateline or one of this, you know, sensational news shows covered. And, um, you know, just like Columbine, it's like at its heart, you have this school shooting, which is a disaster. And it's the, the, the reason we're reading this book or the reason we, we are fascinated by it is because there's a dark subject matter. Like there's something sort of dark and seedy that happened and we're fascinated and repulsed and, you know, that's always going to draw us into these these issues or these um, events. 
But then to have a, a sober-minded writer be able to take that sensationalism, draw you in with it, but then give you uh, a, ma a micro and macrocosmic view at the same time. Um, that's such a feat, and that is so, you know, rare. And there were some sections in here that were just, I mean, just unbelievably thrilling almost i mean they talk about saving the uh, babies in the in the nicu oh and the, that, that scene there's that scene yeah. with the with the man so uh, one of the babies in the unit um has to be basically hand respirated and a doctor gets onto a helicopter with him so we should we should mention first yeah. how this hospital you know has this rich long history but they had forgotten over the years that they had a helipad on top of the hospital because they hadn't used it in 20 years or something crazy like that. So when when Hurricane Katrina comes, they need to get a bunch of people out of the hospital. And this one doctor takes a baby out of uh, the hospital and in, in his arms on a helicopter and respirates it himself. And the only way he could tell whether or not the baby was alive was to pinch its foot to see if the baby would react to it. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's an amazing thing. But to go yeah. back to what oh, you were I, I saying, found, wait. oh, go ahead. Sorry, Todd. I, I just found the section, so I want to uh, I want to read it really quick. So they they evacuated a bunch of the babies, but they had two that were on giant machines, and they had spent hours saying like, we can't take the babies without the machines, and the machines wouldn't fit in the helicopters. So that's what the context is here. So up on the helipad, neonatologist Gershink was deciding what to do about the two sick babies whose incubator didn't fit on the small helicopter. Um, Gershanik, sorry, I said it wrong before. Gershanik depended heavily on technology to keep his critically ill newborns alive. Transporting babies this sick without an incubator was unthinkable. And then new paragraph, and then it wasn't. Gershanik decided to take the risk. He climbed into the seat next to the pilot and cradled a six-week-old preemie wrapped in blankets in his arms. Baby boy S had been born at 24 weeks with severely underdeveloped lungs and still weighed less than a kilogram. Gershanik dispensed rapid puffs of oxygen with squeezes of the reinflating bag attempting to replicate the work of a sophisticated machine that sent oscillating waves of oxygen into the baby's lungs someone placed the other tiny baby from the incubator into the arms of a nurse who folded herself into the back seat of the helicopter she slid the baby under her scrub shirt decorated with pink and blue baby footprints so oh, that's what this whole entire book yeah is the like. entire book is like that it actually shows the best and worst of everything in human existence. There is the uh, seeming behemoth of a giant company, which is uh, Tenet Healthcare, which owns the hospital, which was vastly unprepared to, uh, to help these people or to get these people out or to do anything with the hospital. There's the vast behemoth that is FEMA that was vastly unprepared. There's the vast behemoth that is the United States government in general that was vastly underprepared. But then you drill down into the tiniest working parts and it's these mm -hmm. cooks and these janitors who went to their jobs and they stayed there for five days and tried to take care of these people in what was you know absolute squalor and you just think these people are getting paid seven bucks an hour and they're putting their life on the line and they're they end up having to make life and death situations or um decisions with these people and these people are Elsewhere, sitting in ivory towers, basically saying it's not that bad. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's it, that's what give, gave me the, the sense of profound anxiety of oh my god, you know, everything you think is bad about the world really is, and everything you, everything you think might be good about the world really is. But then you find that there's other shades of gray in between, and those shades of gray 
invariably are these doctors who stayed all the way through for five days and then had to make this decision, what are you going to do with these patients? Well, in some cases, what they did was they shot him up and killed him. Um, and that turns out not to be legal. But, you know, there's, there's all these different questions of also how could they not see beyond the walls of that hospital? That mm -hmm. their entire life ended up being constrained into the walls of this hospital. And I think that's what happens in sort of hostage situations or, um, you know, accidents where you feel cut off from everything else. You try to create order right. in any way you can. And I think that's what Dr. Poe ended up well, doing. She tried about, to create I mean, order. This book is so much about confronting the gray areas of, you know, and, and, and how mm -hmm. we how we react in situations where we there is no right or wrong necessarily set for us so how do you deal with those situations and of course emergency situations thrust you into that and if you aren't prepared for it the narrative kind of can be written for you and like you know what's so interesting mm -hmm. to me about this what happened at memorial is how often people did horrific things or or did a reacted poorly to a situation because they misunderstood the severity of their situation. They thought, like, for instance, and this is, I think, what happened to a lot of New Orleans at the time, they thought there were roving bands of people with guns going right. around oh, exactly. uh, killing people. You know, and it's like, we all, like, for instance, every post-apocalyptic movie, TV show, right, everyone's always, like, instantly a cannibal with a gun. Like, why does that always happen? It's like, in, right. our, in our feverish imagination of, what would happen if order, if the law and order breaks down, we assume the worst of everybody. So then because we assume the worst of everybody, we load up our guns and start shooting people. Or we start freaking out right. and don't take care of our patients at our hospital. And so I, I think so much of this book is about looking at a situation for what it really is and to, to have a clarity about what is actually happening in front of you and to not overreact. But there were also, I think, at Memorial doctors that really uh, had a fungible sense of the value of a human life. I mean, there's that one doctor mm -hmm. who basically was like, he, he, he was putting animals uh, down. So Memorial was also filled with um, workers' animals, dogs and cats. Pets, they're pets. Pets. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like they pretty much began killing the animals right away. Um, you know, I think on the, on the second day, they started killing the animals. Um, Right. But there's one doctor in particular, and I can't remember his name. Was it Wynn? Um, Dr. Thiel? Yeah. Maybe? Is it, yeah. is it him, the older guy, that, that put his daughter's yeah. animals down and then was walking so. around killing patients? Um, who was just pretty cavalier about the role of the doctor being more of a, you know, an end-of-life decider, even when there was not a DNR present. Well, but I think, I mean, most of the people I know that work in the medical field kind of do feel that yeah. way. Like, it's... There, I mean, the, 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 there, there's this, I think that there's a really sort of unspoken reality of, like, hospice care, which is that at a certain point, you do, like, a lot of doctors just say, okay, well, this is, this is right. it. Like, this person is not going to make it, so I'm just, you know, palliative care. I think palliative care usually, not usually, but often reaches that point where it's just a matter of giving them enough um, morphine yeah. to, to stop their breathing because they're so uncomfortable and they're so miserable and taking away their pain. You know, I mean, they talk about it in this book, but I, I, I think that even in non-emergency situations, that is the situ that's a weird line and well, that, that is, varies from doctor to doctor on how they mm -hmm. feel about it. And, I mean, the reality is, and this is very hard, I think, for 
a regular civilian such as ourselves to think about is like truly people who work in the medical field or you know are in the army or whatever they just have a completely different understanding and reality of death than the rest of the rest of our culture i mean they know that people are going to die every day they're used to it they know what it looks like they you know they are emotionally prepared for it so when it comes to the ethical moment you're having a completely different experience than like you know Ryder strong trapped in a hospital with strangers that would be very very different than really experienced doctors and nurses who have seen over so many deaths you know they're just it's so it's almost a different like species Mm -hmm. of person so i and um one thing that is you know like we haven't mentioned yet but you know like I also I read this back to back with the uh, um, whaling cannibal book I was telling you guys about a couple episodes, <laughs> and what what people will do under um, dehydration and exhaustion right. is again I mean like the factor of you know feeling like they're running out of water and that panic and the panic of just being so tired is just it's something that we on our well rested you know days where we're reading on our couch for four hours it's very hard to get in that exact mindset but i i think even if i think even if you're if you've ever been trapped in an elevator for like five minutes people start to act fucking crazy you know like two (laughs) minutes in you start to see their atavistic selves start to come out much less you know being trapped in a hospital for five days while a city's underwater um so uh, you know, I, I agree that there's you know there's there's levels of um, of stress that bring on these things, and then there's the different view of what life is worth, and and then you know how to get these people out and make get them to live. But throughout the book, there's there's huge failures in in just the human systems, um, which mm-hmm. Sherry Fink goes into on all levels, from the hospital management to the medical management to patient management to people and their loved ones that are in a hospital and how how are they to be taken care of i mean she she doesn't point fingers of guilt she just lays everything out and lets you decide we won't we won't ruin the ending of what happens to these folks and i i had absolutely no memory by the way there's a they talk about how this is all on cnn as a big special report and i guess i didn't see it Oh, yeah, I didn't remember that either. And I, I knew nothing about this case at all reading it, so I was riveted all the way to the end. So we won't, we won't tell you what happens to the Dr. Death uh, from Memorial Hospital. Now, for those of you in Southern California who might be interested, Sherry Fink is up for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for um, Five Days at Memorial. So she'll be at the LA Times Festival of Books April 11th and 12th. You can meet her. You can go to panels. You can talk to her. You can ask her big, important questions. Um, but you're going to have to climb through my body to do it because I'm going to be on her like, uh, I don't even know what I'm going to be on her like, but I'm going to be stuck to her and just asking questions. Okay, chapter seven. When you said, I can't wait. I hope she realizes she's going to be cornered in the green room by some weird John Lovettsian looking guy who has questions about uh, euthanasia. I want to read a, a, a really short paragraph that I think sums up what uh, the, the, the project of this book Um you know, it's talking about Katrina in general or hurricanes in general. And then it, it says the hospital was a microcosm of these larger failures with compromised physical infrastructure, compromised operating systems and compromised individuals and also instances of heroism. <laughs> I just think like that is the entire book, you know, like in yeah. three sentences or, or two sentences you get like, that's really what this book is about. And, and, and it captures 
that on so many different levels. And wow. my 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 takeaway um, <laughs> was was the sort of benign evil that exists, um, which is this was from the hospital um, after everything had ha- happened, and people were being interviewed, and the hospital put out a statement to the employees where they said. If you decide that it is in your best interest to be interviewed by the government or the media, you have a right to request that a hospital representative appear with you. It is often prudent to have a third party present in such situations to ensure that your words are not inadvertently misconstrued or taken out of context. Because it's not appropriate to discuss publicly these matters, the hospital asks that you refrain from talking about these issues with other employees and people outside the employee of the hospital. If you need any information or have any questions, or if the government or the media contacts you, we would appreciate it if you would call me. Please feel free to call Collect. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's oh nice. God. Yeah, yeah. Just, it's, it's lovely. Yeah. It's lovely. Yeah, I mean, I think all the corporate stuff was absolutely fascinating, and I want to read it again and make a chart of how it works because it was right. as overwhelming. Right. And Well, it's amazing. Like, how, you know, not only do you – how do you decide when to kill somebody, let them live? you know, whatever, that big question. But then it's also, mm-hmm. when do you decide to punish somebody or not for having done, having performed euthanasia? It's in, in a, in basically in a war zone. I mean, that that's. Or what people thought was a war zone, which is. But also so much of it comes down to, you know, public opinion or, or, you know, face-to-face contact between the mm-hmm. investigators and Dr. Poe or the, the nurses and doctors who are, you know, there's also, there's lots of issues of class, you know, like oh, huge issues of class, the idea yeah. that Dr. Poe is, is protected because she has a lot of money and education behind her and status within the community. Whereas the nurses who are also being charged working under her can't make rent and can't right. get a ride to the courthouse and like how they're, you know, the difference of their experiences and then, you know, how, Dr. Poe has access to a media consultant. Mm-hmm. So we're unanimous in ag- agreeing that this book is incredible and we don't want to spoil too many of the details for everybody so we won't go in depth, but I, I, is this like one of our highest recommended reads from literary Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And Ever. you know what it was great for me, I should I should note this, is that I read this right before going into the hospital to have shoulder surgery. Oh, God. So it was, oh, it was per- I, I got in there and they were giving me drugs out of van to, to calm me down before they gave me a block. And like, do you have any problem with Ativan? And I'm like, oh my god! Throughout the entire book I just read, all they did was give people Ativan and then fucking kill them. <laughs> and so I said, yeah, yeah, go ahead, give me yeah, Ativan. Please, it must be a pretty <laughs> but, yeah. powerful drug. That, that, <laughs> that was really nice. Really liked it. You know, it, it's a it's a fantastic book. Everyone should read it. And I think um, you know, if you are in LA, you should come to the LA Times Festival Books and see Sherry Fink on uh, on April 11th. concludes this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we take on Charles Byrne's classic graphic novel, Black Hole. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter, at literary disco. Thanks for listening. So crazy.